KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Bono. This is the Henry George Program, show all about land, policy, and politics. Today the program, we have on Edron Rizzo. She is active in Common Ground, California. She is a UC Riverside grad student, also active in California's for Electric Rail, and just recently wrote an article for Streets Blog California, California Needs Leadership on Electric Rail. On the program today, we have a very packed episode talking about multiple topics, uh, but electric rail is a big part of it. Uh, we talked the first 20 minutes about the Inland Empire, uh, that is to say Riverside, San Bernardino counties. Then, after the first 20 minutes, we talk about electric trains, wires, 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 and then wrap up at the end talking about University of California stuff. Without further ado, let's, uh, let's get into it. So, uh, Adriana, thanks uh, so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. Great to be here. Yeah, so on this program, we have a, kind of a grab bag of issues, stuff that's facing the Inland Empire, uh, you know, and I, I think as far as, you know, what is the uh, Georgist angle to all this, uh, I think it all, uh, by definition, has a Georgist angle, as far as uh, Adriana <laughs> is uh, currently the vice president of California's pre preeminent uh, Georgist organization, Common Grand California. But uh, yeah, I think uh, just uh, let's start off talking about kind of like what Inland Empire is, you know. Uh, so yeah, how do you how do you kind of describe what's going on down there for people who don't you know know what what those two counties, the Greater Metro, is or whatever? Yeah, so Inland Empire, sometimes referred by humorists as Lesser Los Angeles, is uh, the sort of suburban area east of Los Angeles in Riverside and San Bernardino counties also known as the uh, the Riverside, uh, Ontario, San Bernardino Metropolitan Statistical Area. One thing people, I think, don't think about a lot is that we, this region has actually surpassed, now has a larger population than San Francisco, uh, but you definitely would not know that based on how much it gets talked about in the news and that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's basically like a very suburban area. Its, it's economy is like very linked to... Um, Los Angeles, as well as Orange County, due to sort of uh, the jobs housing imbalance. So that, that's kind of the basic lay of the land here. Um, I think a lot of when a lot of your listeners think about the suburbs, you're probably they're probably thinking about places like uh, Palo Alto, Cupertino, Boo, Hiss, etc. These sort of very, you know, affluent, exclusive areas. But um, I think the Inland Empire is like a great case study for this other phenomenon that's been happening in the last, you know, 30 years, which is the suburbanization of poverty. Um, I mean, it's it's a very uh, diverse area, like uh, it's majority Latino, uh, have like high populations of Black Southeast Asian people as well. And it's really the destination for people who are priced out of and displaced from Los Angeles. If they don't leave the state entirely, they, they're ending up in um, the Inland Empire. And so that, I think, demographic context is really important. I guess, you know, there is, like, economic diversity within the region. There are more, aff- more and less affluent areas. Um, but you have places like, uh, you know, some more middle class type areas like Riverside Redlands. And then you have like places like San Bernardino, which uh, has the, the highest murder rate in California, more violent crime than Chicago. Again, also has a very tough on crime, you know, right wing DA, that type of thing. Again, not sort of the thing you hear about much when people, you know, are talking about San Francisco all the time in the news. But yeah, it, it's a region that's undergone a lot of growth in the last, uh, you know, few decades in response to, I think, the failures of coastal California to uh, manage their econo- economy and housing. 
So, so when you talk about Inland Empire, because I'm seeing different definitions, do mm-hmm. you mean it to mean uh, the two counties? Because like, there's the whole like drive to qualify Los Angeles kind of commute shed. And people pour out, obviously, into the west part of the two counties, and that's you know Riverside, San Bernardino yeah. proper, yeah. and a lot of other cities. But this, like, this is a pet peeve of mine, <laughs> which is just like counties should not be gigantic, and those two counties are so oh, big. Yeah. Like they, like, how far does it take to drive from the west side of them to the east side? Well, San Bernardino County is the largest county in the United States, so you can spend, you know, probably three or four hours driving through San Bernardino County. Is, I mean, is that because the Alaska ones are boroughs, not counties? Uh, probably. Yeah. Maybe maybe yeah. lower 48, maybe in the lower 48, um, at least. Sure. I don't know about Alaska. But yeah, I'm really mostly talking about, I mean, it depends on which, de- like, different statistical measures will use different definitions. But I think sort of culturally, economically, we're really talking about the Western parts of the uh, parts of these counties so like north of like the mountains north of the Cajon Pass I feel like that's not quite as much Inland Empire uh, I think in Riverside Re- County it really kind of goes out to about Beaumont uh, and then you and then there's a mountain pass that sort of separates it from like the Coachella Valley Palm Springs yeah. that area which I think is is not really part of the Los Angeles commute shed in the same way and it's pretty different culturally and there's also just a lot less uh, economically and just like a lot less population out there, though. So I'm not, I usually don't talk about like the desert regions when I'm when I'm talking about this. I think you could argue that like some of the uh, some of the high desert like Barstow, Victorville is kind of part of the same economic phenomenon as like, you know, Riverside, San Bernardino. But in general, I'm not really talking about the the desert so much. Yeah, I guess that's a question. If you cut off, you know, Coachella, if you cut off Victorville, you know, Victor Valley or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, like what percentage of the whole metro area, meaning the two counties, is in like the L.A. part of that? Do you know offhand? Because it seems like uh, it's, a lot of it or most it's of most it. most of it. Yeah, that's where all the population density is. Um, you know, a lot of large parts of the, you know, the eastern parts of these counties are just empty space and... I think for I know in Riverside County, for example, like four of the five county supervisor seats are in the sort of the western part of the the county. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, as far as it goes, I mean, it's it's connected or whatever. It has its own politics. I'm trying to like just piece out what is the politics life? I was was seeing some stuff you were sharing about like recently the San Bernardino Airport. They're like demolishing low income uh, housing for warehouses like it seems like a lot of stuff which is feels archaic in California is kind of like urban uh, renewal type stuff or whatever how do you just like what is the political base for uh, Inland Empire yeah I mean I think the Inland Empire is kind of like a purple region of California like it's uh, in terms of national and statewide elections you get a mix of Republicans and Democrats uh, a lot of the Democrats that are in power tend to be on the more sort of conservative side, I would say. Um, but uh, we've got we have a mix of both. Um, I th- Riverside County very narrowly went uh, voted to recall Gavin Newsom in the, during the recall. Oh, election. <laughs> Is it the kind of thing like it's like, oh, if I'm going out this far, I'm going to have a single family home. And you get a lot of kind of like this is my personal palace kind of thing or like I, I guess there is core cities. And of course, you know, yeah. you're part of the UC Riverside area yeah. and that's like not only an old town, but it's also a college town. I'm just kind of curious, like what the variety of kind of different environments and how that how that deals with housing politics. 
Yeah, so like in general, it's I think it's also depends on the local demographics because there's areas like are kind of in the more exurban area like Temecula, which has been in the news a lot lately, uh, which is su- are super conservative, very you know hardcore, hard right type of po- politics there, and I think that really reflects who gets elected at the the state at the countywide, like the Riverside County Sheriff was like a former Oath Keeper and. You know, as as these all these connection to these far right militia groups and things like that. So there's that aspect, but then there's other areas that are more working class, more diverse. Like you know, Moreno Valley, like nearby Riverside, went very heavily for Bernie Sanders, for example. Uh, so there is this kind of diversity, but in general, I would say like a lot of the electeds at the kind of local level are kind of just not very ambitious sort of centrist Democrats or who have managed to sort of take over from the Republicans, but they're, uh, yeah, not not really new agenda or anything. Yeah. Hmm. There is, I think a real difference, at least in the Inland Empire between where Democrats and Republicans are on housing. Um, So Inland Democrats, at least at the state state level have been actually been really good on housing. They vote, pretty consistently for all of the pro-housing bills, like all of our inland senators voted for, Democratic senators voted for SB 50, all were on board for um, the social housing bill last year, for example, whereas the, it's pretty pretty much not the case for, for Republicans. Um, so, re- and for example, there's a new uh, recently elected Republican from Bill Asaley from kind of Corona area. I'm unfortunately in his district, who's kind of, who's a, uh, in this sort of new breed of like extremely online uh, culture war conservative types, he's, uh, you know, made a lot of transphobic statements and passed this anti, tried to get this anti-trans messaging bill through as an aside. So they also a, beca- a young griper kind of, kind of hmm? like young based griper Republican type. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huh. Uh, well, that's, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and of course he actually lived in Orange County, not his district. <laughs> Um, but he became kind of a character on housing Twitter recently because he was defending the city of Huntington Beach for uh, in their attempts to get out of uh, following the housing element process. Big, big fan of local control and all of that. And you hear similar rhetoric for uh, from other Illinois Republicans. It's like it's really not too different from what you hear from a lot of like NIMBYs in L.A. and other coastal cities. But these guys uh, out here, these guys are generally uh, actually admit to being conservative as opposed to pretending otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I, so I think like in general, the region has been like historically more pro-growth than um, than uh, than Los Angeles has, I think, in part because the economy is a lot more precarious uh, being sort of in this like hinterland. You know, it's we're not in the city center. Land values are sort of more variable. But when you um, say pro-growth, you also mean kind of more horizontal track development or does it also kind of is is there like infill type like stuff historically i think it's sort of by growth i sort of mean everything i mean like industrial growth i also mean you know sprawl growth also mean infill growth uh in some places so like to give you an example fontana which is uh this you know historically working class town it was the home of the kaiser steel mill um, which you can read about in city, the city of courts, kind of my Davis's magnum opus. Uh, sort of in the eighties, they shifted their economy from to being sort of very sprawl, pro sprawl, f- sort of pro single family home growth, 
that sort of ended after the, you know, the Great Recession. And then they've really embraced warehouses. Like there's a city council member in Fontana, like people call Warehouse Warren because she's mm-hmm. she's so pro <laughs> warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then there's also at the same time, Fontana's also has this plan to develop infill and mixed use in its downtown area. Again, there's not necessarily a lot of vision, I think, among a lot of leaders, but sort of like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what we can do to get um, to get more more growth and have a stronger economy. Because there is a lot of poverty here. And I think, you know, a lot of the politicians are trying to do whatever they can to, to deal with that. Well, when um, you talk about warehouses, just offhand, is this like is this like freight warehouses for like logistics and distribution type stuff, or what, what, what's going on here? Yeah, exactly. So, um, in a lot of you know, with the advent of online shopping, we've really seen a re- total reorganization in how retail is is done. So, like uh, in a lot of city centers, we're seeing these uh, you know empty storefronts and this. And all the sort of trouble maintaining retail. At the same time, there's been a huge boom in logistic warehouses for Amazon is sort of the most most memorable one here. But other, you know, all sorts of other online retailers have large um, hubs uh, where you know items are processed to be shipped out to customers, basically. And that's be- that's been the fastest growing industry uh, in the last you know ten years. And that's it's something that consumes a huge amount of land. Yeah, I mean, I think every metro is, is is certainly it seems you know you have to have at least a few Amazon warehouses uh, everywhere to make this whole thing work. But I guess there's like even more kind of like larger regional stuff, and there has to be hubs or whatever. So. Yeah. So the Inland Empire, you know, the Port of Long Beach is, I believe, the bu- busiest port in the country, and you know, a lot of stuff comes in there, and then. Inland Empire is very well connected by rail and highways to Long Beach. And and so it's sort of there's been a lot of growth in warehousing to accommodate all of that stuff coming in from Asia that then gets, you know, sorted and distributed out to all of these online retailers. Freight rail. That's interesting. Let's 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 put a pin in that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, I mean, like especially where you are near UC Riverside, like what's what's a general like, uh, you know, what, what's the general feelings as far as, you know, people and housing? Like what's a housing burden around this area? And like, you know, I, I know you're mentioning uh, overcrowding being an issue, but uh, yeah, just speak more about, you know, kind of what this is, is, is like. Yeah, so I mean, the Inland Empire has this reputation historically for being, uh, having affordable housing, right? That's why, you know, so many people have moved here from Los Angeles and, you know, in sort of the 80s to 1980s to 2000s, there was this, you know, very huge boom in like single family sprawl that kept uh, that kept uh, things relatively affordable and employed a lot of people in the building trades as well. And uh, one of the impacts of the 2008 recession, which absolutely just decimated the housing construction industry everywhere, but for like particularly here, which was really hard hit by the foreclosure crisis, hit by subprime loans. Um, so that was just a causeless, really massive lingering depression in the area that made create a lot of homelessness and uh, put a lot of you know construction workers out of jobs. So since then, there hasn't been very much housing construction, you know, as the population continues to grow, rents have started to go up. 
And this was particularly uh, true during the pandemic, where a lot of people, you know, famously moved out of city centers and out here uh, for due to remote work and uh, a lot more space and things like that. Less um, cabin fever. And so one of the results was that the Inland Empire had some of the one of the some of the largest uh, rent increases in the country. Like average rents went up by, I believe, uh, over twenty percent um, in 2021. Um, and so that's wow. caused a huge, uh, you know, I think, increase in rent burden for people. Um, I mean, I think most people, me and for most people I know, everybody is rent burdened and that we're paying more than 30% of our income in rent. I think, you know, severe rent burden is not quite as, uh, as, as widespread, but it's, you know, it's certainly going increasing. And I think one thing to consider as well is transportation costs is, can, is are, are also tied to that. And so... Um, you know, the Inland Empire has some of the longest commutes in the country, like particularly in sort of the newer, more out, newer, newer outer suburbs like Menifee, Lake Elsinore, which are a bit south of Riverside and a bit more, uh, but there's still a little bit of sprawl development that's still happening. Places out there, it's like the average commute time is like more than an hour. And so there's a lot, a lot of people that are spending, you know, hours of their day in their car driving to their job in Anaheim or Los Angeles or something like that. Um, and like everybody knows somebody who uh, who does that. I used to have a roommate that commuted to jobs in Fullerton and Glendale from Riverside and was like in her car like all, all the time. It was. And so I think that's something to, else to consider when you think about housing costs is it's not just you might be saving a little bit of money on housing. But if with those added transportation costs, people can be just as cost burdened as, as people in Los Angeles. And like rents are really not that much lower than um, than than a large parts of Los Angeles anymore. I think, you know, still certainly cheaper than West LA, but I think comparing comparing to like the more you know, lower income, gentrifying parts of Los Angeles rents are out here are kind of approaching those levels at this point. But average wages are lower. Yeah. So as far as I mean, when people commute, I think I'm just pulling up. I have like some old census commuting numbers. I pull mm -hmm. up Riverside, Los Angeles. I think based on this is uh, 53,000 people uh, would go from Riverside to Los Angeles to work. Uh, and of those uh, 40,000 drove alone and 50,000 drove alone or with other people. So I guess, uh, f you know, 400 bus and I guess, uh, Metrolink would be the rest, which is, you know, just, you know, a couple thousand at tops. Yeah. I mean, it's so like, which is a question, like as far as connectivity and everything, it's in the commute shed, but like how, like how well does Metrolink work? Cause this implies not very well. Yeah, I would say it's it's not very well. Um, the frequency for Metrolink is is not great. The uh, at least on the Riverside line, the trains stop running pretty early. Like I think the last train leaves at seven from Los Angeles. It's 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 much slower than driving. To... The big question is like when you when you get there, are you is it near a job center? I think I mean that's the other issue as well. Like I think a lot of the Metrolink network, and so it has all of these branches that all kind of converge into um, into Union Station. Is um, then you need to make several transfers if you want to get elsewhere in like Los Angeles, and it doesn't connect to a lot of places in the like very well to like places in like the San Gabriel Valley. 
um for example like east la for example like places that you might expect people would be commuting to or some people might perhaps yeah best, best case that's a long commute and i feel worst case it's gonna be just impossible yeah unless like you have a job right next to union station then it might it might make sense yeah <laughs> But, uh, okay, that, that's kind of a transition talking about trains. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's more you kind of want to uh, fit in with, with uh, Inland Empire or housing and other issues, we can talk about it now or fold it into UC stuff later. But is it the right time to talk about trains? Yeah, I think this is a good time to talk about trains. One thing I also want to mention right off the bat is that uh, Inland Empire air quality is also quite bad. We have, you know, the worst o- worst ozone in the country. This is uh, this is something that relates to. It's partly related to like, the logistics industry. So one thing I talked about with the with the warehouse expansions is that um, that brings a lot of heavy truck tra- truck traffic, and, which uh, contributes dispor- disproportionately to ozone production. Mm. Um, um, but I mean, some of that is also due to cars, right? And so it's a very car-oriented area with not a lot of public transit, as we've talked about. And then we also get, uh, just because of geography, um, most of the year we get these uh, western winds that come off the ocean and basically blow all of the smog that's produced in Los Angeles uh, eastward and where it kind of gets concentrated in this, you know, the eastern end of the valley. So that that is contributes to the the poor air quality as well. Well, I guess the good news is the California Air Resources Board is on it, and they're 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 fixing everything, right? <laughs> well, so the California Air Resources Board just passed this new regulation. Um, so they've already passed regulations on trucks, basically um, mandating that they transition to basically battery electric, I believe, by twenty thirty five. Um, but they recently also passed this rule in April, the in use locomotive rule, that mandates this transition to zero emissions for trains as well for rail. This is something that a lot of environmental justice groups have been asking for because there are a lot of rail, there are a lot of rail yards in the inland empire as well which actually have can have pretty uh, a lot of them have very high elevated rates of cancer associated with people living there elevated rates of asthma um, because the, uh, the the trains that are using being used and the rail yards in particular like a lot of the switchers are often running the like 50 year old uh, engines that are very uh, very polluting. Um, so that is was that, is that particulates more than I, I guess like well, what it's exactly both particulates is... and uh, nitrous oxide, which is a ozone producer. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think like you can see like head to head. It's like mm-hmm. oh, even if it's diesel trains versus you know ICE cars, you know trains are better, but they're certainly not perfect. And when you have a whole like yards full of them, yeah, the pollution could be real, real nasty. Yeah, I mean, definitely at these localized levels. But you do bring up a good point. Like overall, trains even even with um you know the old locomotives are on trains a lot of times which are like decades old and haven't been updated to standards even with those uh rail is still actually much better for um air quality for greenhouse gas emissions than cars and trucks are because it um is so much more efficient you can haul far more things for less energy and so that's something that I think that is a problem with this regulation and like the way a lot of environmental groups talk about emissions is that we're really not thinking about the mode shift and the ability uh, that rail has to reduce emissions from cars and trucks. They're just sort of only focus on the direct emissions from this, the train engine. 
And so like that's that's one of the issues with this uh, ruling as well is that um, it really doesn't say anything about um, what type of which technology should be used to replace diesel trains. Right. So the rule mandates that um, the uh, look they have to start switching towards tier four locomotives pretty rapidly these are just more efficient diesel locomotives and okay. by 2030 they have to any any uh train that is manufactured in uh by 2030 or later um has to be running has to be uh, a zero a zero emission vehicle and then they have mandates about when do you have to phase in these new zero emission trains to actually be running them um but the problem is they don't say anything about what type of zero emission train to use and there's actually huge differences here the premier zero emission train technology which has is invented over 100 years ago and is used in most of the rest of the world that has actually you know good rail transit unlike you know southern california is overhead catenary which is basically where you have the train is powered by electric wires running over which most people are familiar with like with this for like light rail trolleys like in you know trolley cars that sort of thing are typically electrified in this manner but also is very effective for heavy rail even large freight trains yeah in the u.s we we get it in the northeast corridor but not really many other places for heavy rail right yeah, so the Northeast Corridor, there's some in the Chicago Chicagoland area as well. There's like the, the South Shore Line. Uh, Cal- and- Caltrain is finally going to be electrifying. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. happening right now. Yeah, so Caltrain just uh, electrified its entire route and, or sorry, the San Francisco to San Jose route, and it's going to be uh, up and running next year. Uh, very exciting. Yeah, they've been, they've been putting the post up. You yeah. know, all the posts <laughs> have been going up for, for years now, and they finally did a test run just the other week. Uh, pre- pretty sick. But uh, no, it's it's like there's this there's this news story. This news story kind of blew up because like mm-hmm. we all been talking about this for months now, and there's this mm-hmm. news story saying, okay, you know, the resources air resources board uh, said you got to go carbon free, and mm-hmm. the and and of course California doesn't control its own destiny because of course we don't. You know, these the freight lines and all the lines in general are almost all owned by private interests. The uh, the you know class one railways. And they are, you know, responding by saying it's like, well, if you say no emissions, this means two things. This means hydrogen or this means batteries. And that's just not realistic. And yeah. the entire conversation is <laughs> skipping over catenaries. Like, you know, it's 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 I mean, it makes sense. If the comp- if the companies want to not do anything, they're gonna try to obfuscate and say, like, oh, this is impossible. But really, if you're trying to drag them into the the 20th century really like there is a clear answer here which is string some wires up but they they hate they hate the idea yeah and so several rail industry groups actually recently sued carb uh, over this ruling basically saying that it's an impossible mandate um but that ignore completely ignores of like all of the countries like you know india switzerland italy china where have you know, mostly, if not entirely, uh, electric systems for their freight rail. Yeah. And I think they, they do have a point when they're saying that, well, hydrogen and batteries just aren't realistic. They just uh, don't have they they don't have the power for hauling all of the cargo that these freight companies are are hauling. But catenary is right there, <laughs> and and they're really resistant to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I get I get frustrated. Like even some like local places are like, so, I mean, this like down in like VTA in the San Jose area 
it's they're talking about their bus fleet and everything else and they're like oh we need to go batteries for buses and like i this is this is i mean it 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 is a political fight for stringing up wires for your buses in a city make them trolley buses but it one thing like this affects the like aesthetics of freight rail which uh, freight rail is not really the most aesthetically dominant thing as opposed to kind of a downtown area which i still think wires are fine but like that's one big thing too if you're if you're going to put up a, a massive capital change like uh if you're going to make a big change to the to the the rails as far as putting up new poles and everything else there's going to be environmental impact reports which cost a fortune and like weirdly are a lot about like how does this look like yeah like, there's a huge like visual impact portion of every EIR which is just it just is ridiculous to me because like you already have the tracks there. Like there's yeah. some amount of visual disruption that comes from that. I don't see having wires above the tracks changes anything about the visuals and anything substantial about the visuals, right? It's also like, why is this an environmental issue anyway? I mean, especially when you think about like the overwhelming environmental benefits of electrification, which include not only are they, you know, do you get rid of all of the emissions that come with like a diesel train, but you can also have much better service. Um, so uh, electric motors uh, accelerate faster than the combustion motors. This is why like electric cars can go, you know, from zero to 60 in one second. Yeah. It's the same principle for electric trains. You don't have to refuel them. They can just or charge them. They can just run continuously, uh, and they have they can be lighter because they're not having gigantic batteries. If oh, that's yeah. your plan, yeah, yeah. And so there's just you. They have the potential that you could have much better service. You could have faster, more frequent service for with like the same amount of you know capital expenditure, same amount of personnel. Um, much cheaper ops. And even even compared to existing trains, right? So there's so much potential here to give us better better train service, make to make like Metrolink like a functional uh, you know regional rail system, and to actually get the trucks off the roads too for free. Like that's uh, I think yeah. another thing people are not talking enough about mode shift for trucks. Um, like there is like you know a lot of very anti-truck sentiment in the Inland Empire. A lot of you know freeway congestion and also it's just really like as a pedestrian as a cyclist it's really unpleasant to share the road with like 18 wheelers you know it just is very dangerous um and so i think that's it something people care a lot about and like uh we're just not talking enough about how we can encourage mode shift to reduce all those emissions from cars and trucks uh reduce driving and just make a you know transportation so much more pleasant for everyone yeah, I think I get yeah, that's that's a major goal shift shift to rail within the rail opportunities, you know, for for non emissions. Like you mentioned, like the the actual goals are neutral on which they use. But like yeah. I've like li- like listened to the, the carb folks talking, and they again and again will basically say like electrify, you know, hydrogen or battery. You know, like it seems like they are like seem to be saying rather explicitly they think only two things are possible uh and you could talk about this i mean as far as the environmental impact studies and everything else call this an unintentional side effect or whatever but it is really weird that like because of the visual impact of wires which again who cares like you move to implicit environmental costs because i guess like you don't need those studies to the same extent if you're throwing on 
hydrogen systems or battery systems. But you talk about batteries. That's an environmental impact for digging up the rare earth metals. Yeah. And, and I, I know you mentioned something about like, yeah, you do you work with hydrogen uh, in your capacity as a grad student? Oh, and- yeah. Yeah. My day job, I'm a geochemist and I uh, work with high pressure hydrogen sometimes for certain applications. And it is a huge pain to keep that from leaking. Hydrogen's a very small molecule, so it escapes much more easily than other gases do. I mean, I think there's real, there's, they're not insurmountable, but I think there are real safety issues with hydrogen in terms of thinking about leaks, in terms, it's it's a very flammable gas, um, but it's also leak prone. Uh, it's also a flammable gas that um, weakens the structural integrity of steel. And so there are like all these serious technical challenges with storing and transporting the hydrogen. They think, you know, they're just not there for catenary. And I think it's going to be a lot more expensive than people are banking on to deal with that. Um, that's again, that's a local issue. There's um, because so the uh, the Metrolink SBCTA San Bernardino Transportation Authority has really been pushing hydrogen in there. They're going to be running these experimental hydrogen trains on their uh, Redlands Arrow line, which is this new light rail line that they've put in. Uh, And they're building this hydrogen facility uh, in Colton, which is low-income minority community with lots of other industrial impacts. And they're putting in this uh, hydrogen facility. And I think a lot of people in the community are saying, well, we're already exposed to all of this pollution, all of these, you know, dangerous industrial uses in our community. And now we're getting more, we're getting this this hydrogen hub. And I think people are not thrilled about that. And then it's interesting to contrast that with like homeowners in Atherton who sued Caltrain because they're mad about having to look at wires over the rail tracks, right? And it's just like, yeah. this is not a system that is is working, that is favoring, that is is providing justice or equality. Yeah, when you talk about like kind of like a, do you want hydrogen near you? I mean, I think it still has the burden of the Hindenburg. Uh, oh yeah. But, uh, but topic, like I've I've heard this story. I actually I've I've never really s- you know seen the original source, but the story is they were testing hydrogen buses in San Jose in the seventies, and one blew up, and mm-hmm. like that I think scuttled that whole plan. I mean, again, technology can always improve, uh, but. The the failure mode for hydrogen is certainly much more worrisome than anything you'll ever see for uh, for overhead wires. Yeah. Uh, one question too. I do you know offhand like the efficiency losses because I mean if you generate clean energy, you know, nuclear or you know hydro or whatever, and put it into wires, that's like the losses are pretty minor as far as things go. But yeah. what what does it look like to, to generate hydrogen gas usable for this? And like, is, is, is that efficient at all? Or how does that work these days? Yeah. So I know two and a half uh, hydrogen is two and a half times less efficient uh, than um, just electrifying. It uses tw- two and a half times as much energy for the same okay. amount of output compared to just direct electrification. So there's a lot of inefficiencies there. Uh, and that's assuming you're using green hydrogen, which is produced through electrolysis, which is where you have to, where you split water, basically. Um, a lot of, most of the hydrogen, like 98% of the hydrogen in the supply chain today actually comes from fossil fuels, from like, you know, natural gas, basically. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that kind of opens up an idea, like if you're, if you're mandating clean energy or whatever, it seems like 
if you're doing hydrogen, it better be green hydrogen. I don't know. Is that part of the system? That's a, I think that's a big topic of controversy right now because the Inflation Reduction Act, which recently passed, has a lot of subsidies for hydrogen in it. And um, I think there's a big fight between sort of environmental groups who really want to mandate that that money is going to green hydrogen, which is actually produced using renewable energy from hydrolysis versus I think a lot of fossil fuel company, gas companies really see hydrogen as a way to keep their business going for long, longer and prolong demand for um, for natural gas. And honestly, I really think that is where a lot of this hydrogen push is coming from, uh, particularly in Southern California, where we have a lot of, like, there's there's this, uh, you know, investigative report in the LA Times like a year or two ago about how SoCal Gas has just been buying off all of these local local elections and like local city council members. And so I think, you know, I definitely think there is some, some kind of fossil fuel, a lot of fossil fuel interest behind some of this, this push for hydrogen that's going on. But the thing about, and so there's we like green hydrogen is produced by splitting water with renewable energy. Uh, blue hydrogen is hydrogen that comes from other ways. But even within uh, green hydrogen, there's still, I think, a lot of issues with it, which is basically beyond just like the efficiency issue. We, it's wastes a lot of energy compared to electrification. It also just uses a ton of water to make that hydrogen to begin with. Like um, there is some study that uh, done on like a BNSF freight facility in Albuquerque that was like said that if they were to replace all of the diesel with hydrogen just at this one facility, that would use the equivalent of 20% of Albuquerque's water supply. And like, you know, in, in, in California, where we just came out of this his, historic drought uh, with severe water restrictions, are we really, really going to be able to get enough water to get to run everything on hydrogen? It just doesn't seem realistic or like a sensible idea to me so if you use water for that is the water spent like there's like you can't like reuse it like cycle it through is it like one one and done yeah pretty much i because uh you you're chemically transforming the the water into hydrogen and then you do create water again when you burn the hydrogen but that's comes out as emissions from the train right it's, yeah, it's distributed, di- everywhere. distributed everywhere so i don't think you can Using current technology, there's no way you can get it back. That's 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 interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, like twenty percent. <laughs> yeah, that's that's nuts. Uh, I mean, in general, I mean, it's like so. As far as the political fights go, I mean, so uh, you're you're involved with uh, the Californians for Electric Rail uh, Org. Yep. Uh, and I guess that they're doing advocacy largely within the California Air Resources Board. Uh, board is there like well, what 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 are the avenues for I guess reform in all this area. Yeah, so I think we need multiple multiple prongs. I mean, it would really be good to see statewide leadership on this. Just get the you know policymakers makers acknowledging the existence of catenary, saying we want to prioritize this. We need to get everybody on board to make the make sure the infrastructure gets built for this because we do need to put up the wires, which I think is like a great. You know, this is a great sort of green New Deal type of project, you know, just transition type of project that will employ a lot of, you know, create a lot of union jobs. Um, but um, how do how do we make that happen? I think there's like a couple of different things we need to do. So we need to make sure the various state funding agencies need to make sure that money is made available for electrification, um, that, you know, money for green green energy projects for zero emissions technology is 
is going to catenary and that, you know, even that they're going to prioritize catenary for these types of projects. And so that's that's something I think you could, there's multiple, multiple angles for lobbying, you know, both within these agencies as well as with the legislature to say, hey, we need the money to go to this. Um, the second, the th- second thing is we need some legislative action to, uh, to reform the permitting process for electric rail. Um, yeah. Because like when you're putting when you're putting over stringing electric rail over existing railway lines, you're not harming natural areas. You're not displacing people. There's um, you're doing something that's going to reduce um, CO2 emissions. Right. So there's no need reason that you could go through, uh, you know, extensive reporting and expose yourself to lawsuits under CEQA for these uh for these projects we would like to see legislation that really removes some of the requirements under CEQA for rail electrification projects that meet these types of criteria yeah that'd be pretty cool um and i feel too like it's like as far as like the long-term trends of the california versus the class one railways i mean it sounds like they're going like straight head to head like can you regulate us can you not i mean a way to get around this is just more public ownership the right of way you know it's if we actually had more state capacity in this in this way uh it certainly is less of it, it is weird to say hey you know put up electric on your lines and i think i don't know how much of it is their business plan as much as like like i mean i think like capital like their their tendency to skimp on capital maintenance is also kind of famous but yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, everything is short termist. Uh, and I guess, you know, one, can you fix that the regulation or, you know, I, I miss Conrail, but at the very <laughs> least, I would love to have uh, love to have more, you know, state ownership of the freight. I mean, like Caltrans runs uh, Caltrans runs the, the state Amtrak lines, but that's all done the freight rail. You know, it's it, we're a second class citizen for all this stuff. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a huge issue, and right? this is where the Georgia angle comes in too. I think, um, you know, a lot of passenger rail right of ways are owned by um, freight companies. This is a huge issue with Metrolink. That's one of the reasons their service sucks a lot is they have to ask permission for when to schedule do their schedules. Does Metrolink um, own any of their lines, or they own some of their lines? Um, so they actually uh, they own part of the San Bernardino line. I know, and they. They own the sort of from Riverside to the end of the Paris Valley line, which is actually a totally new rail right of way that was been built in the last like 20 years. Um, Interesting. But, but as you get into the city, it gets pretty. Yeah. Pretty, but like between yeah. Riverside and Orange County, which is this really, really heavy, has really heavy freight traffic. You know, like I get stuck behind these trains all the time crossing over that um, that line. They, they don't own it and they've been talking they keep talking about double tracking and stuff but i don't know when that's ever going to happen uh and same thing with <laughs> that's, uh, that's a real george's <laughs> angle which is boy wouldn't it be so nice to take every single track rail double it you know quad it as necessary and right now that is such a like an expensive nightmare and my biggest dream of all is like Make that easy. I mean, this is going to mean taking land away from some people, giving you know, giving to the rail, but it's a minor slice, and I think that's that's a cost of doing business. You know, you're near a rail, you know, you need to deal with it. But I think that's the real that's the real issue here, right? Is that these freight rails they basically control everything. They mess with the passenger rail. They um, 
you know, they, they've been skimping on investments, capital investments through this precision scheduled rail, railroading strategy yeah. um, where they just cut, they're all about cutting costs over anything, approving, improving operations. Like freight has been losing, they've been losing business, losing road share to trucks over the last 20 years, uh, which you would, you would seemingly think would be a problem for like a company focused on profit. But anyway, not not on their radar. I also hear like the other George's angle. I mean, I, I hear I hear that taxes like I hear that they actually kind of save money when they decommission existing double tracks to go to single track hmm. uh, because like it's like they don't have like, you know, it's like, oh, we have less we have less capital on our books. We save some money on that. Uh, and like their whole business model with you know, the precision schedule, whatever, is like, yeah, make it long and avoid redundancy. So it's just, you know. Like that's I don't want a world with less redundancy. Like this is this is not this is not what we want to be seeing. Yeah, exactly. But so all of these are uh, the rail companies are basically monopolies, right? They are like yeah. four big regional monopolies. There's like or, four... or I guess like you know kind of like overall regional duopolies, yeah. but they kind of carve out every region. But there's two, you know, in every region of the U.S., there's two companies that kind of uh, have a v- very stable equilibrium. Yeah. Um, so, and I think I think these all these problems we're talking about, I think, are real highlights of why monopoly is bad. By its, you know, bad for um, productivity and growth, um, and you know, is just sort of fundamentally unfair. And uh, um, company, I think the Georgia solution to when do you have like monopoly like this uh, is either is tax either tax the bejesus out of them for for their uh, right to, for that right to exclusion or just take up ownership all, altogether. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's been increasingly co- increasing calls to nationalize the, the, the class one freight railroads uh, in, after the Palestine uh, rail disaster. And I think, yeah. you know, I think that it's, it's sort of a hard, tough pull politically, but I do think that would really solve a lot of these a lot of these issues we have we, we are an outlier <laughs> as far as like international rail it's nationalized pretty much every other place um, yeah like uh india i know for example which is uh 90 electric it has like nationalized rail and uh electric rail and nationalized rail go hand in hand and uh some of the big biggest proponents of of nationalizing rail in terms of these you know these sort of radical caucuses within the railroad workers are also really big uh proponents of electrification as well interesting yeah it's it's that's like one thing too as far as getting environmental orgs interested in uh in catenary wires it's not the i mean i think people like sexy stuff you know they like i mean i I wouldn't quite say like hyperloop kind of vaporware sexy but like I think like hydrogen does make it sound like, oh, this is a new thing we're doing as opposed to no one gets excited over a string over a wire. I think they should, but like, unfortunately it's not sexy yeah. enough. I mean, so what, from what I've seen from environmental organizations is they, unlike, unlike the policymakers, environmental orgs acknowledge the existence of catenary. They don't seem anti-catenary. They seem even like mildly pro-catenary, but they're yeah. not like making it a priority. They're not sure. saying, we definitely need catenary. They're like, catenary is good, or maybe hydrogen, maybe batteries. I don't know, but you got to make it zero emission. Yeah, um, it's a start. Yeah, but so I think that is that is something as well where it would be good. I think that's achievable, definitely, to get environmental orgs more on board and 
more, you know, passionate about book Katner. But I think you're definitely right as far as the government agencies, like with, you know, Metrolink has been very pro-hydrogen, very anti-electrification. And I think a lot of American transit agencies and a lot of politicians in America too are like not used to looking at international best practices and are just sort of, are interested in the flashy hyped up technology. And honestly, a lot of them don't even really see like rail is like a thing for adults it's i feel like it's like a fun toy for the kids that they you know want the flashiest thing possible for pr reasons but you know all of their their serious people are 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 focused on expanding highways right that's the problem with a lot of these transit agencies um certainly sbcta that's that's how they're running a lot lot of transit agencies are like oh yeah we, we provide a kind of transportation of last resort for some folks uh, I mean, you talk about staffing or everything else. I mean, one thing you mentioned, uh, you know, talk about Green New Deal or whatever, mm-hmm. like, like, where do you get the capacity? And there's one big answer. You know, we have Caltrans, the state DOT. Yeah. If you just shift people away from highways to, to rail, these people can be retrained. Most, uh, you know, I speak from experience. Most, most transportation engineers are just monkeys who kind of like just, you know, connect the dots. You know, they, 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 they're technicians and they can, they can be trained. Uh, I mean, I, and I think, I, I think there's a future for, we use the workforce we have not for evil, but for good, you know, have them be working less on highways. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, we need a just transition for, uh, for highway engineers. <laughs> It's it's possible. Yeah, I, I think it's unfor- there's a lot of institutional inertia obviously. I think it's I don't think it's a lot of I don't know how much it is are owned by the petro industry and everything and how much they're just kind of stupid, but there's <laughs> there's a future. Probably here. a mix of both, but <laughs> Yeah, it's I, I don't know. You have to start off by like visioning mm-hmm. it. So, I, I I don't know how this is going through the the Hall's academia or whatever, but there's there's a path if we handle it right. But yeah, yeah, but it will be really. In- I'm really, I'm really interested in the outcome of this lawsuit between the uh, these rail companies against CARB because I, I wonder whether it's going to invalidate the state regulatory actions or kick it up to you know the national level. Because um, it would it would be really nice to see. I mean, California's for electric rail is is really focused on California because I'm I'm a little bit jaded about national politics, but I think. Ultimately, it would be nice because we have this interstate rail network and lots of long haul freight. It would be really nice to see more leadership from the federal DOT, from the federal government to to make catenary happen on a national level. And yeah, that's really put the screws, turn the screws on the uh, these these freight companies. Yeah, I think you had to, to find out like some places to start that are really going to make an impact, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, California usually is the bleeding edge in some way. So, uh, as far as like keeping tabs mm-hmm. of lawsuits, do you have any idea like what the timeline looks like? Or I can never I, track these. I don't. Out. Sorry, I'm not. I'm not really <laughs> a lawyer. I don't know a it, ton about the. You know, I don't know. Yeah, it's the, like the, the stuff system. could could be wrapping up in a month or you know a decade. I I, I can never keep. keep keep track yeah. uh but speaking of academia uh, mm-hmm. speak a bit more uh you're talking about cost of living everything else uh you know but in particular you're involved with uc grad student unionization and mm-hmm. as i understand it you know housing costs you know is not an irrelevant part of of the whole platform of you know what people are are up against so just speak a bit more about uh uc uh stuff yeah, so uh, as many of your listeners we know, so uh, last fall, uh, the 
a bunch of academic workers, primarily grad students, but also postdocs and other similar people with similar lines of work, uh, went on strike in the UC system. It was 48,000 people went on strike. It was the largest strike in uh, higher education. And I think, uh, you know, in this strike, as, as with like increasingly a lot of other labor disputes, as we're seeing a lot this year, the real theme was really housing costs. Um, and, you know, that was sort of the messaging around that. And the um, the sort of groundwork for the strike, I think, kind of came from the there's a t- the 2000. 2019 wildcat strike at uc santa cruz a wildcat strike is like a illegal strike basically that's not um and that was basically over you know the sort of outrageous housing situation in santa cruz which has you know these really highest percentage of homeless students anywhere in the country um you know just absolutely appalling levels of rent burden i would definitely recommend reading some of like daryl owens like right who's a uc santa cruz grad writing about the like the housing search experience in santa cruz it's really yeah it went from uc berkeley where it was bad down to uc santa cruz where it was worse yeah Uh, i should have him on just talk about that sometime but uh (laughs) so as far as it goes i mean down uh, over here in in uh stanford uh i mean this is you know it's a private versus public but Uh you know we just had the grad students establish a union like this is yeah. a brand new thing uh you know actually uh, uh former gm of the radio station uh was a major figure in in making this happen uh but as, as far as the uc systems like have these unions been in existence for a while or are the unions also relatively new yeah so the uh you, the locals uw two eight six five, which kind of came into existence in the like late 90s um but there's kind of a new uh a new union uh unionization push that happened in 2020 2021 to basically include grad student researchers within the union like the way it was before is basically i don't know if people really understand what grad students do exactly because we do a lot of different stuff i didn't I quite mean, understand why i was a grad student for, I mean, for like so some some grad students are basically teaching assistants or head instructors for basically teaching college courses either on their own or together and the but then uh graduate students also do research and like run labs help you know maintain instruments order supplies all of that kind of stuff and so previously they were only part of the union if they were a ta and not if they're doing any research research work and so there was a push to unionize the graduate student researcher that happened in 2020 uh and really increased membership a lot um and so that was that sort of happened leading into the strike as well but at stanford there's a difference mm -hmm. between people who are technically funded through fellowships versus you know kind of more standard university uh grad student employee system is is that is that a a difference that has mattered in the uc system um, I mean, that's definitely, a, I think, a cons- like, can be a concern in terms of people having getting paid differently of having. Because certain... I mean, like Stanford, Stanford's trying to keep the fellowship people out of the unions. Uh, a whole no, thing. the the fellow fellows have now been included in our union as well. Oh, okay, that's yeah. interesting. But but that's new new with our latest contract. Gotcha. Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm just kind of curious how, how it's working from place to place. But I mean, just off off the board, I will say, you know, Stanford for. Uh, Stanford does do a good job, I'll say as a grad student, uh, relative to most, of actually putting enough housing on site. Uh, and the UC systems, you know, as far as, like, 
despite their construction power, because, I mean, UC systems are not constrained by zoning. They can do basically a ton of stuff, but they provide relatively little housing for any number of campuses. So, Yeah, I know at UC Riverside, it's about like 8%. They have capacity for like 8% of the graduate population. That's nuts. Um, I mean, come down to a beautiful Stanford, like they, they, they're building, you know, they're, they're just building gigantic fortresses full of grad student housing uh, just to keep up with it. And, you know, good on them. Yeah. And so that's not really happening at UC very much. And I think that's part of, what, part of the problem of why, you know, housing cost burden is so bad here. Um, and the, so there is a bill that was, um, I know there's been an issue with like, again, bringing out the CEQA, CEQA lawsuits blocking housing, like particularly at UC Berkeley, I believe it's Santa Cruz at well. Um, there was a bill at SB, I believe it was SB 566, right? That was passed last year that was supposed to exempt the UC from CEQA for student housing, but actually had kind of a poison pill put in it uh, regarding LEED certification that basically means they can only do this for one dorm at a time in the entire UC system, which makes it almost useless. Uh, I've, I've hated LEED for decades now. What a, what a, what a, just a pointless program. I don't know. Like it, it seems like all the stuff that like, seems like it feels good more than actually is good. Yeah, it definitely know. seems a lot less useful compared to like passive house or something like that. Yeah, um, I mean, it, when you have lead certified, mm-hmm. uh, lead certified uh, parking garages, when yeah. you have stuff oh like the Apple spaceship has lead certification, mm-hmm. well, huge park. It's it just it. It's not holistic, you know. It's it's a checkbox full of little things you do to juice up a number, and not anything that actually has a reasonably quantified impact of how a place works it's just it's stupid it's a racket too in my mind but uh okay man just say more about that because i mean like sequa like that's the last thing that's holding back uc capacity at all because you know if if they got sequa exemptions they are they're basically an autonomous country yeah, absolutely. CEQA is a big, is, is, has been a big issue. Like, there's been a bunch of lawsuits about particularly, like, the People's Park, um, you know, controversial People's Park housing site at Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a lawsuit that I think that, that described the noise from college students as, like, an environmental impact, uh, you know, basically saying, like, people are pollution. It's it's absolutely... Now, this is alive and well. Yeah, it's absolutely, uh, yeah, about the Malthusian stronghold of Berkeley. Um, So that's a big, so CEQA is definitely a big issue, and I hope that this, um, you know, this law gets gets amended to be more useful. I think there are also issues internally within UC around funding. Like, I think UC a lot of times, this has come up a lot with Yimbys around like social housing, like to cite the sort of low, you know, relatively low per unit construction costs the UC has relative to like affordable housing providers, for example. And that's true. But I think um, there there is still an issue with, I think, a lot of the UC regions and people are making these decisions. So you need to see um, the housing as like a moneymaker, as something that is like a you know, and it brings like a net positive to their balance sheet uh, rather than a, whereas I think working with something like a, a cost rental model was is really what I'd like to see from UC going forward. Because I think this 
you know, this need for profitability can be can could be an issue in some rental markets, and it also encourages them to charge rents that can be like quite high, even it, it, like in the new construction. I guess high relative to the income of the people living there. Obviously, you know, I'm sure these units would be very affordable compared to what you know the rent burdened you know uh, six figure people who are still struggling with housing costs are finding but for you know grad students who were making i think the new minimum salary is thirty four thousand dollars a year under a new contract is much lower before that you know rents can be um still be like higher than people would like for affordability um like for example the like i know at uc riverside the the rent for a one bedroom is uh 1300 a month, which would leave, which was more than 50% of the TA salary less, you know, uh, under the old contract. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, like some of the internal financing and some of, and as well as like priorities and cost rentals are are kind of challenges for UC um, built becoming a housing machine as well. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the overall system for pricing was back in Stanford grad student stuff, but I lived in a kind of very modest one, the cheapest on campus. And, you know, I mean, this is, you know, going back uh, almost a decade when I was still in it, but uh, like it was in the order of 700, 800 a month. And even, you know, even not getting a huge amount, like I, that was, I had room to, to, to spare having, you know, only paying that much and yeah. uh, certainly beat anything else in the, in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I su- like, yeah. And I suppose it's, it's weird. You talk about like, Oh, they have a, a need to make housing, you know, a profit center. It's like, well, if you're like, just like what's basic infrastructure for the campus, you're like laying down sidewalks. Do you want to make that a profit center? I don't know. Like in a lot of ways, just having housing for the students seems just, basic infrastructure i don't know yeah especially like there's a lot of you know educational research showing that like you know students who are commuter who are commuter commuter students do perform worse and are more likely to drop out compared to uh you know students living on campus at the undergrad level and so it seems like you know making sure that like students can afford to live on campus is is uh you know would be part of the educational mission for at least from the undergrads so something that inter- kind of interesting that U- UC Riverside is doing on that front is they've actually um, they're they're they've just announced they're like uh, the sort of new the the new they have they're expanding their undergraduate dorms they've been uh, building a lot um, and so they're they're actually seeking funding to create it's like housing joint housing for the UC as well as for local community college and part of the project is providing. Um, 600 beds for low-income students that are that are basically subsidized subsidized for low-income housing within the dorm which i think is is pretty interesting and something that you don't don't see as much or hear about as much in the context of uc of student housing interesting yeah as as far i mean uh, like insofar as you had a competitive run for uh, is it like shop steward right i don't know what oh yeah so uh, i ran for head steward uh a couple months ago um but lost lost very narrowly um yeah it was a competitive race (laughs) Uh, i guess my question is you know for someone who's involved in this i i think talking about pay for you know cost of living is a very obvious thing that is going to be part of the system but is influencing the production end of housing policy something that a steward or just the union in general has kind of the capacity to really articulate a vision on? Yeah, I think that's that's 
that's there's a like that's a really good point and i think there's a lot of you know differing opinions about like what can a union do so one of the uh during the during the strike and the lead-in there's like you know the sort of contract negotiation stage the union came up with a lot of proposals about like a wide variety of, of topics not just not just pay disability access and uh parental benefits and rights for international students things like that as well as uh i actually had a housing article that was pushing for um guaranteed housing on-campus housing for uh, international students and student parents, nice. um, which I think well, if that had gone through, that would have been a, like a way to build into, um, you know, involvement on the with the union on ha- on advocating for more housing generally. Um, unfortunately, that was that was a uh, that was an article that the UC was just very reluctant to negotiate on. Ended up mm. getting was never seriously bargained on and ended up getting uh, chucked out completely when we went into mediation. Uh, and that was, uh, which was, I think, a real disappointment for me, particularly where a lot of, um, I think one of the motivating factors for the strike for a lot of people was advocating for that and for a, a cost of living increase. Um, that's at where pay is specifically tied to um, the housing conditions around a university, which I think would have force the universe to have some skin in the game and actually stand up to like NIMBY, local NIMBYs who, who I know in Santa Cruz have like killed so much housing, both university and non-university. And so, um, does Riverside, I mean, like, that's the thing, like my worst people in the world and Palo Alto is kind of adjacent, but it's college town yeah. NIMBYs and Santa Cruz mm-hmm. and Berkeley definitely have it. Does Riverside yeah. have the same kind of college, like the weirdos who live in a college town, but hate the college? Not really. I mean, I think, I mean, River, I mean, Riverside has been kind of a commuter school traditionally, so like a lot, of, it doesn't have a huge campus culture, and so it doesn't have a lot of the like wild parties and sort of stuff that I think gets uh. people really hating the students. Uh, I mean, Riverside does have you know its own NIMBYs, but I think they're more of the the classic like racist white Republican type uh, type of people who are you know <laughs> I've, I've seen at uh, you know local meetings who are like extremely upset about the idea of being you know apartments or low income housing in their neighborhood because would bring in you know the bad sure. people basically. <laughs> But I don't but think it's it, we don't don't have it's not Riverside in general isn't despite having a large university doesn't really have the college town culture I would say in a lot of ways it's as more sure. of a diversified economy. One thing I think people don't think I think there's also a, uh, the Georgia's framework is really useful for thinking about universities and that they're incredible creators of value, uh, just huge amounts of economic activity, um, you know, productivity, human capital that comes out of universities and the status quo in California today is that basically all of most of this this value goes straight to homeowners. Um, if you look at the you know the housing prices in Palo Alto, Santa Cruz, places like this, these uh, you know homeowners benefiting tremendously from all of this that's coming from our public universities and paying very little return for that. And I think we need to reclaim that value, um, those land values for yeah, it's a minor miracle that we retain the public ownership for like, you know, you could imagine this could have been mm-hmm. privatized to different interests over the years, but at least that's still public. But you're right, like right outside the campus, uh, there's a lot of a lot of private interest you know, getting, getting fat and happy. So 
And that, that's one another reason to build that you see needs to build more housing as well, I think, is to to keep keep some of that wealth uh wealth within them and not not enriching the local landlords. Yeah, I mean that's it. I mean, going back to the article, that's interesting mm-hmm. that uh I mean it sounds pretty novel. So even if it got chucked, it sounds like it's starting uh perhaps a trend towards things which could be pretty exciting. So uh yeah. I mean, it kind of re- it kind of relates to the fact, I mean, some of the most cursed discourse online mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, is UC housing social housing? And, oh, yeah. uh, and this goes like a lot of things. Okay, is it publicly owned? Yeah, yeah. I mean, no one's contesting. It's definitely yeah. publicly owned. Is it democratically controlled? I mean, no, you have the UC regents. And that's the um, thing. I mean, it matters how you define it. Yeah. UC regents are nominally, I mean, they're indirectly democratically controlled. Mm-hmm. I suppose if you talk about unionization, that's going to have like another so, like kind of at least democratically adjacent uh knob mm-hmm. but you know certainly if you're just some schlub out there it's like oh yeah fix the uc region system it's like well good luck i mean that's very mm-hmm. very indirect i guess the third thing is like is it really is, is it belong to everybody it's like no yeah it is gated by if you're enrolled as a student at the very least yeah. so but I guess nominally everyone could be a student. So like, I mean, it's a, it's a big question. Like uh, in any case, I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to be, I, I tend to take the case. I call it social housing. I think it's broken social housing. In a lot of ways, I'd say it better. Some people take the opinion. If it's social housing, it must be perfect because it's not perfect. It's not social housing, which, okay. I mean, that's a philosophical, uh, but I just talk a little bit more about kind of, you know, like the vision for UC as social housing, democratic control and, and everything like, you know, what, what what is the potential here? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, democratically controlled means different things. Also, I think one thing that a lot of people say is the sort of democratically controlled by the tenants who have some kind of say in how the, yeah, the building is managed. And, and the, that, that was something that has been included in, for example, the AB 309, uh, the Lee Alex Lee social housing bill that has, you know, language about that has been included, you know, in in those those versions as well. And I think that's a that's an area where the uh, the UC really kind of fails, in my opinion. I think as it stands currently, UC housing is very top down. It's yeah. It's very it's um, of course affiliated with the student conduct. Um, office there's a lot of like rules that um you know you have no say over like for example somebody i know who lives in like ucr housing was like forced to write like a very humiliating apology letter for staying in her own apartment uh that she lives in by herself well she had because she had covid instead of there's having some policy of trying to get make you stay in a hotel which doesn't make any sense if you live alone um so i think and there's like just been a lot of draconian policy like that um that i think kind of makes it fail on that end as as well as just like the way that i think universities are not really democratically run anymore in a way that i think they should be and that you know it's all of the a lot of the decisions have been sort of wrenched away from faculty members and are now made by these administrators you know, very overpaid administrators who are trying to run the university like a business. It is really, I think the UC system is incredible in a lot of ways. It's, and it is publicly owned, but I think it does have a lot of problems in terms of it being managed in a not particularly uh, democratic uh, way. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I suppose, I suppose, mm-hmm. 
you talk about democracy or mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, I, as far as I, I put tenant democracy personally in the overall umbrella is just tenant protections. I mm-hmm. think it is a good yeah. way to make sure tenant protections are enacted in a way that is not paper. You actually have systems. And so I would, I mean, in general, like tenant protections and you see stuff isn't good. It could be a lot, lot, lot better. Yeah, yeah. And I would just, I would just say that's kind of, that's just, I call it social, social housing, but not good enough. It needs to be better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess I, I like, I agree. I think there's like, I don't want to conflate like social housing and, uh, and good housing are tautologically the same, right? Like I think even though I, I, I don't know, I actually don't really care particularly whether you see housing is considered social housing or not, but I think whether or not it is, whether or not it's good, it's like good in certain ways. I think it's good in general because we need more housing. We need more housing in particular in these coll- in college towns and UC is best equipped to uh, to produce that, and so I think we just need to pull all the levers we can to fix the uh, you know the horrible housing crisis in college towns in California. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more productive yeah. to focus on the how could it be better than talk about definitions some more. Uh, even yeah. though that is uh, <laughs> that is more catnip to to Twitter uh, Twitter land, but yeah. uh, no, I mean it, it is like I, I see across the board so many stuff like oh it's publicly owned stuff's happening. It's like oh but it's being run like a slumlord. It's like yeah we need to like we need to address this. I mean I think we certainly can't say oh if it's publicly controlled we're we're happy because I I I don't agree and mm-hmm. uh i think we need to have real functional housing that's good for tenants and you know works uh but I'll, i mean i also want like in the long term i mean you talk about kind of more uh distributed democracy at local levels is, is that is that going to be a long march through like legislative reform or something how 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 can you undo that trend that you see I mean, I think that's really where the labor movement comes in, as, uh, you know, I see it a lot as as being about fighting for workplace democracy. And that goes from for every union, not just economic, but it's about sort of uh, wrenching, taking control away from the boss and putting in the hands of workers. And, you know, you can sort of achieve this incrementally through contracts like uh like our latest the latest uc contract has a has a clause that the uh administration has to meet with uh the union about transit and you know have joint labor management meetings about transit and allow you know union members to give their input about transportation i just came from one of those meetings today had a good really good conversation about like bike infrastructure and so i think there's like stuff like that where through contracts through labor action and strikes uh you know workers are able to uh you know sort of gradually uh increase the scope of things that they have a say on in their own workplace well cool i mean i think that is that is the roadmap uh well i think that's that's everything i want to talk about here anything else you want to mention before we wrap up yeah i wanted to circle back to something that you kind of mentioned i don't think i really answered correctly which was about the sort of competition between homes and warehouses um, in the virus. Yeah, so there's been this sort of very large warehouse boom. It's consumed a lot of land. There has not been really any attention whatsoever given to where these warehouses are suited. Like, they're not necessarily located along rail lines, which is what you would like to see if, uh, you know, to increase that freight mode share, for example. Uh, And historically, those warehouses have built on sort of greenfield. 
um, which is in itself sort of competing for land for housing where, you know, previously maybe greenfield, you would get greenfield sprawl development instead in those places. But in a lot of the inland, inner inland empire sort of running out of land for that. Yeah. Um, and so it's increasingly competing with other uses. And so this particular um, project in San Bernardino, which is the, uh, the San Bernardino airport, um, the airport gateway specific plan is basically this plan to rezone what is currently a residential area that's, you know, occupied by a lot of like low income people, rezone that to industrial and build some large warehouses there. So this would displace uh, up to 2,500 people who live uh, sort of around this airport. Um, and, and you're right that it is kind of a classic urban renewal type of politics here, although it is it's not so much for like the public works as an urban renewal, but basically being given to, um, you know, private, private interests. Um, but yeah, I think this really, this, this project and issues like this to me really sort of give the lie to what people talk about zoning is for. Like people claim that zoning exists to protect people from noxious industrial uses, but it, we see in reality that it, does not do that at all, right? It is to protect rich people from apartments. And in fact, a lot of times apartments are considered a noxious industrial use. Like you see, you know, the way apartments are placed on big arterial roads. Uh, in the Inland Empire, we're actually seeing a lot of new multifamily housing that's built, being built right next to warehouses uh, and, and warehouses being built like right next to single family homes, right? A lot of trucks. Yeah, so a lot of trucks, a lot of pollution, just a lot of noise and unpleasantness from that like um and yeah and so i think this is i think zoning like any other thing exists to protect the powerful not yeah and it's just all about who has who has the money and who has the um the political power right um, is, is this is this is this whole like about uh uh freight through the air is this like i know like different like freight like freight hubs that goes through the air freight and then has to kind of go through warehouses. And I mean, back in Cincinnati, the Cincinnati airports are pretty, is a pretty big business there. Is that, is that what these warehouses are for? Or Yeah. So this is the San Bernardino airport is like a uh, big air cargo uh, sure. airport and they're building warehouses around it to deal with that freight. That makes um, sense. Well, yeah. And so, I don't know, I think, I think this gives some insight into like the politics behind zoning and land use. Uh, I guess one other bill related to this I wanted to mention that's kind of about kind of about warehouses and housing is like El Assemblymember Eloise Reyes has been trying to push this like basically buffer zone law. She tried to do it last year. It's come back this year as AB 1000, which basically is mandating that you'd be like buffer zones between warehouses and residential areas. Um, because like, I think as we can see the zoning, uh, you know, doesn't really have any any teeth uh, as it's being used here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it's like being close to, I mean, in mm -hmm. general, maybe a more kind of precise idea of like noxious uses or something, mm -hmm. you know, just like actual impact or whatever. But yeah, it's 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 not unreasonable not to be, want to be next to a bunch of semis. You know, it sucks. Yeah, I think it's the same thing with like zoning and CEQA are like, you know, the idea, I guess, behind them seems nice, and maybe we should actually have a system that to to guarantee these things. But neither of the neither of these processes, as they work, actually do anything to like promote environmental justice or uh, you know separate people from environmental harms. They're mostly about, I think, protecting the 
the you know aesthetic interests of, of wealthy homeowners yeah who um, wins through legalism the uh, the rich and powerful you know does it actually have a holistic impacts it's like uh, mm-hmm. not if not if not if legalism reigns so yeah that's yeah not shocking at all but mm-hmm. uh well, that's uh, yeah, we've been going for uh, for a bit, uh, but uh, yeah, that's a fascinating look at a lot, a lot of different <laughs> issues. Uh, I guess before we wrap up, uh, I guess if people want to keep track, especially of kind of uh, California for electric rail, uh, I mean, just what, what, what's your advice for uh, how people can kind of keep uh, keep tabs of this stuff? Yeah, so we're trying to get uh, get an article published in Streets Blog LA. Hopefully, that'll be out by the time this podcast is published. Um, so keep keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, we also have a uh, Twitter account for Californians Electric Rail is at, at Cal Electric Rail. Uh, I, I also just would plug uh, if you want a, more info about this the nitty gritty of rail and inland empire housing stuff. Also follow Marvin Emmy Norman on Twitter. He's a real savant uh, about all of this, all of this stuff, and endless wealth of resources. Absolutely. So cool. Thanks mm-hmm. so much for uh, for being here today. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. We have been talking to Adriana Rizzo all about electric trains, inland empire, and UC. Uh, since this was uh, came out, uh, as I mentioned before, that article was published. Uh, you can find a link to that in the show notes. Now, one more piece of news that came in as well. Uh, since this was recorded, Attorney General Rob Bonta declared the San Bernardino Airport plan illegal. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of the Henry George Program at the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Gaze Issue, Stanford 2023-2024.